Thank you very much for inviting me to talk today. I'm both honoured and humbled to be asked in the first place. And I do mean that in the sense of a very free area approach to teaching and learning, which is important to me in the sharing of uh, knowledge amongst one's peers in a supportive uh, environment. And I look forward to the discussions today. Uh, this talk will be about 45 minutes or so, roughly in three equal parts. Uh, it will start with an opening introduction and a little bit of a discussion, some thoughts and ideas. Uh, it will look at one particular project I was involved with for quite a while, uh, relating to widening participation for Muslim women in Birmingham. Um, and then it will conclude with some uh, general reflections. <coughs> this um, invitation really has provided me actually with a very good opportunity. It has encouraged me actually to uh, reflect back on the landscape of widening participation, uh, research and how it's changed over the last 19 years or so since the Deering Report, if anybody remembers that. Uh, and indeed the election of New Labour at the time in 1997. And that was when I was first started to get involved in a local widening participation proje uh, project, a, what they called at the time uh, a special project, um, from about 1998 onwards. <clears throat> For me, managing a local project began really as a very utilitarian approach to research and data collection as I and fellow practitioners uh, across other institutions met periodically to compare experiences before returning to our institutions uh, to write our annual reports to the Funding Council. And these reports set out to what extent how successful, used in inverted commas, our projects had been and what we uh, had uncovered about our target groups and what we had achieved. Now, in my experience, at least, there was very little input, for example, from academics at the time in the, in the form of research and teaching, and there was actually only limited interest, and in fact some hostility as well. And sp these special projects were often aimed at a specific demographic or context, rather than cohorts. And as far as I can remember, the local context actually wasn't discussed much at all. I don't know whether anybody else can think back that far. Um, the projects addressed a range of actual, uh, uh, actually a range of different themes. Um, these are just some of them. Um, and um, that project at the top is the one um, I uh, managed on. These covered a range of uh, what was called, as I say, special funded projects up and down the country. And in my experience, the focus was mostly on particular groups or clusters within society. And this had the, the effect, when I reflect back, on um, homogenising people, rather than acknowledging the increasingly diverse and complex needs of people, their lives, and responding to the pressures they face. And therefore, as well, how the institution might respond and adapt. Before I go any further, I should point out, perhaps to younger members of the audience or international members of the audience, my cultural reference to Rita in the title of my paper. The Rita I speak of comes from the play Educating Rita, written by 
Willie Russell, and first performed in 1980 and adapted for the cinema in 1983. Educating Rita is about the pressures that reached her faces from the inter intersection of her family habitus and the new academic horizon she begins to embrace. Rita is white, working class and local. Uh, she is a mature female student and the film chronicles her experience in attending what she may have regarded as a posh uh, or Russell Group that we may regard uh, sort of uh, as a sort of elite university to study English literature. It provides many amusing scenes uh, that essentially compare the different cultural capital with respect to home life and academic life. And Fisher notes of Rita that actually going to university involves procuring a lifestyle as much as an education. But he also goes on to observe that in the film, at least, she totters into the university, a local student in a sea of white, middle-class young faces. In a tight pink skirt, stiletto heels, tripping over, her makeup and elaborate coiffure betrays her origins. And he says this exaggerated stereotype insults the many women returners whose commitment to learning has been the mainstay of adult education for decades. Now, much as I love educating Rita and what it stands for, uh, Fisher's comments in light of my own experience in teaching uh, and research made me stop and think and critically think about my own practice. And my experience of teaching includes many mature students for example, on part-time courses, foundation degrees, mostly women and mostly from the local area that is around Wolverhampton in what is euphemistically known as the Black Country, particular region of the West Midlands with its very own specific sort of culture and needs. Uh, now, on reflection, I think it's far more likely that these days, undertaking a degree for many of these people, is not about procuring a lifestyle, it's about procuring a job. Um, or indeed, with foundation degree students, sometimes securing their existing job, rather than procuring a lifestyle necessarily. Although the lifestyle uh, part of it might happen as a result of employment, rather than necessarily the university experience. Fisher, I think, is quite true to note the stereotypical insult because, on reflection, most readers are not a homogeneous group in a homogeneous community, but are, they're holding down jobs, they're raising families, and they're being students. And perhaps within this mixture, may well act, uh, education may well actually play a subordinate role, but still important role. As Worsley notes, and you can see in Jeanette Davis's uh, paper in the uh, Journal of Lifelong Learning and Widening Participation, uh, with respect to part-time students, uh, and here I would suggest also full-time, what we sometimes call commuter students, uh, for students there was an expectation that they would fit their studies around other aspects of their lives. 
in the realisation that being a new or different uh, kind of student would be their habitus, if you like. So today's students, uh, into, uh, today, sorry, students' heterogeneity, even at a local or micro level, does actually present us with problems when attempting any kind of extrapolation or generalisation to our research and our experiences as researchers, practitioners and teachers. And more generally in terms of recruitment, retention and progression. It provides challenges of course to the institution as well. So I just wanted to briefly touch on these themes of diversity and heterogeneity and complexity and so on. I have a sense that with most students, and especially those attending students well known for widening participation activities, there is a real need, an increasing need, to acknowledge the diversity and atomised nature of students' lives. I refer especially to what are often called commuter or local students. Projects that, of course, focus on class, disability, race, gender, are still very important. However, increasingly, in my experience at least, students do not define or label themselves in this way. One could argue that this is a very sort of postmodern condition, if you like, reflecting a view of society that is fractured or disaggregated. A society where we cannot pigeonhole groups of people in the way maybe that we were tempted to do before. And there is no traditional student anymore. Uh, and yet, uh, for example, some of Jacqueline's work in Northern I Ireland um, uh, suggests that the normative construction of a traditional student and the experiences a traditional student has still persist. And I would argue that in actual fact there's a normative construction of what is described as a non-traditional student as well. And maybe we need to sort of disaggregate that. The use of the term postmodern suggests I'm leaning back towards the abstract here, Jacqueline, so I do apologise if I'm if I err towards the abstract, you see I'm, I'm moving, if I err towards the abstract, which is somewhere over here, uh, then um, maybe, you know, just put your thumbs down or thumbs up or what have you and then I'll, I'll get the message, but I promise I won't do that too much. Uh, the use of the term postmodern suggests that I'm leaning back towards the abstract, but actually this process of shuttling between the abstract and the concrete can provide pragmatic uses. For example, it tells us that our research at a micro level might be complex and challenging in terms of defining or making conclusions or generalising data we generate, especially, uh, especially so within the context of the local and the very contextualised situations that present a range of diverse demands. In terms of understanding the student experience, I do think we need to do more on understanding the needs of local students. And again, I refer to David's work on foundation degree students as well. I'm acutely aware, for example, that I know very little 
uh, about my students and their lives outside the confined bubble of their university study. For example, if I see a student like this at the back of the lecture theatre, um, maybe as a good reflective practitioner, I would question my uh, work and whether I'm engaging students um, and I need to think about my own teaching and learning strategies. So if I see a student not engaging or listless or cl clearly quiet, then I would, I would tend to worry. One might also consider whether they've been up most of the night socialising in the traditional student persona we have. In actual fact, I've come to realise that they're probably more likely to have been on the late shift at work, is my view. Certainly for contemporary local students. And I say it seems more likely that they've been on the late shift. But what I really mean, of course, is that we need to do more research and understand uh, local students' experience. We need clear evidence, I suppose, or more evidence. We need to know about the challenges our students face, both academically and in their personal lives. And some uh, researchers have concluded that, for example, actually maintaining, maintaining employment was of key importance to students. Um, and that was their primary, uh, um, prime concern, I suppose. Yes? Of a mature student? Um, not of a non-traditional, but more of a mature student. Is it 24 or 22? It varies, isn't it? 21, 25, depends how it's mm. been recorded for different purposes, really. Yeah. Because he served data and it does come in at 21. I thought but it was... actually, that could be people having a bit of a gap here. Yes. So, for <coughs> practical purposes, we're looking at 25, really. Do you know something? To me, it's like the police. Mature yeah. students get younger every day. Yeah. But I think it's probably about 22 to 24, depending on how it's recorded. A couple of years ago, I heard a lot of widely participation of consultants in Manchester who were yeah. noted that students would be 25. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. So I'd be worried if I saw that picture. Yeah. Because I didn't think it was something I'd associate Sure. Okay. Um, I think there are a number of questions that occur to me. Um, and we can come back to these. There's lots of questions in actual fact. But in terms of, let's say, f for those researchers and practitioners out there, it sort of begs the question then if there's life is very sort of... Um, has a great heterogeneity, it begs the question, are we recording meaningful data that is representative? Or representative of people's needs? Is it such a heterogeneous picture now that data can be prob problematic and not generalizable? Are there in fact still diagnostic barriers we can address that apply to most widening participation students, especially in the local context. 
Do we need to think more about student identity, how that has changed over the years, and how we can develop this? And what about institutional change and adaptation to local students' needs? These are some general sort of, at the moment, rhetorical questions, but we can come back to these. These questions can be applied to local, part-time, mature students, and many of them are a combination of all three. But also to many commuter, what we call commuter full-time students. Such students juggle jobs, families, study, and maybe where, unlike the average 19-year-old campus-living traditional student, the university and student life isn't at the heart of everything they do. As Ray suggests here, but back in 1998, but I would argue still true, 17 years on or more, uh, the vast majority of British research on access to higher education has actually concentrated on the macro aspects uh, of um, the student experience. Um, at a micro level, it's a much more complex picture. The focus on the macro aspect actually provides no explanation of the underlying complexities of choice. And I would argue that that is still pretty much the case today. <coughs> Perhaps then we should approach these themes from a different direction. Something else we could discuss. Another way of looking at it is what are the nudges, the drivers and the motivations that tip people over into wanting to go to university rather than considering the barriers through a purely deficit model. And how do we tap into these motivations? Has there been some kind of transformation in their lives? And could this inform our understanding of the needs of the student and how we might provide for them? This includes studying locally. It includes feelings of belonging and fitting in, in coping, in managing pressure, and the highlights and low points of being a student. And this would help staff to develop a greater recognition, I feel, of the complexities of students' lives. Okay, having sort of set the scene with a general discussion, I just wanted to highlight some of the themes in um, the research I did. Uh, and this was about developing new sites of learning for Muslim women in Birmingham, um, yeah, very complex and um, diverse city. So the following account represents conclusions drawn from this research that I hope will help us a little bit with our understanding of the local and the micro. <coughs> the research was very much from the point of view of a grounded approach to data collection. And the conclusions that emerged uh, were compared and contrasted to about 20 different and diverse projects up and down the country. Now, partly the aim was to elevate the findings uh, in such a way that en enabled, hopefully, reliable conclusions and extrapolations to be made but also to try and make connections. And I think actually that could be a theme of today, that if we're going to understand the local experience more, which is, as I say, very diverse, 
I think it sometimes helps to make connections between very, very different uh, and contrasting projects. So the aim was to elevate the findings in such a way that enabled these uh, extrapolations and generalizations to be made. Hopefully developing an understand understanding that would be useful not just for us on this one project, but maybe for other researchers on very different projects up and down the country. However, to give an example of the complex nature of these things, uh, and our task as both researchers and teachers, this project, on this project, one might actually think um, out of all the different types of students that we work with, one might think that this is a very homogeneous and representative group. But in actual fact, we were told by members of the local Muslim community when we made our sort of, if you like, pre-investigations to assume absolutely nothing about Muslim women in Birmingham. Um, and assume nothing in our research as each prospective student will have a range of expectations of the courses that we will provide, a very different set of abilities and skills and experiences, and very different needs. So for us generally as researchers, this has epistemological repercussions. Everything? I'm not, I'm not going to go back to the abstract. Uh, but how do we reliably construct interpret and value knowledge that emerges from our data and how can we be confident of its validity when the subject matter is very fluid and diverse so that's something that occupies my mind do we need to keep assuming nothing in an increasingly sort of postmodern society there are often various uh, varied needs and expectations and it's actually quite challenging uh, meeting the demands of diverse groups in terms of abilities and aspira different aspirations. So, for example, on this project, uh, regular support and regular contact with these gr groups of students was absolutely essential in maintaining a two-way flow of information. And listening to people's needs and articulating their goals was important and required underpinning with good data. Um, and I think this applies in many contexts. Uh, furthermore, my research at Aston University a few years later into barriers to progression for students from low participation neighbourhoods was very different in terms of the student demographic. So at Aston I was speaking to mostly young students, predominantly white, on full-time courses from a very wide uh, geographic uh, area. But when we think about making connections, there are actually some similarities with the work that I did with Muslim women in Birmingham. Um, what, in a sense, looked like a very homogeneous group revealed subtle differences in students' thinking and their expectations. And the Aston research uncovered subtly different outcomes in terms of, for example, students' confidence in the way they applied their degrees and apply their degrees to what career paths they imagined or visioned envisioned themselves going on to. And I'll come back to that in a little while. 
So over the next few minutes, I'm going to sort of highlight each of these bullet points about resources, about the need to be for flexibility, which other researchers have picked up, <coughs> about group identity, about mentoring, and I'd like to come back to this idea about confidence or lack of. I think anybody who's been a widening participation practitioner uh, probably knows that it's very resource intensive and it can be a significant burden on the institution. Now by that I'm certainly not suggesting the students themselves are a burden but what I'm saying is it does need to be recognised in funding streams and by management. There still needs to be much more flexibility I think in terms of how institutions administer and process many local students or especially part-time students on foundation degrees for example. Now at this point I must emphasize that this is not a critique of my current institution. This is my broader experience uh, in about four different institutions over the last sort of 18 years or so. And in my view working with a range of institutions as I say uh, over uh, different types of institutions over a number of years a lot of these ideas and around flexibility and how the institution becomes more flexible still need addressing and this has come out in I think some of uh, Liz Thomas's work as well I sometimes half jokingly say to colleagues you wouldn't run an airline like this, you know, when recruiting and, uh, and supporting um, uh, part-time students, for example. And I think it, it, it's true, actually, that we still need to sort out some of these procedures and make it more, make it easier for people uh, to get onto the course. Um, I then found this cartoon, and it sort of is encapsulated by this. Sorry for the the the, uh, the um, slightly blurred graphics okay. and the caption with this cartoon was this I sort of feel that still about part-time students we're still building the plane if you know what I mean um, and there's still much more that we can do um, issues around funding and recruitment enrollment and registration induction all these still seem to create headaches, especially for part-time students. Flexibility and the need to provide clear and relevant information is essential. And I would term much of this structural in terms of the institution. And I really think more people need to look after these students. That's how I felt the Muslim Women Project that I was involved in, working in different uh, mosques and communities in Birmingham um, that's what I felt it, it needed at least in the first instance and it also needs to be an institution-wide policy and not left to a few individuals the work needs to be supported by strong senior management and proactive services but also a leadership committed to widening participation outreach and perhaps more generally, the concept of the civic university. <clears throat> uh, 
In, in terms of the need to be flexible, this was raised by community providers in my research and by students. However, distance learning was not seen as an option that provided a suitable solution. There was a definite feeling that the sense of communal and collective act of learning was regarded as important on this project. So whilst higher education may have become more flexible in terms of any problems that might still persist, I think, as someone once said, most administrative systems that are predicated on flexibility and the pace <coughs> of provision, these are problems in the sense that they're only problems in the sense that they've not yet systematically been resolved, and I still think that's the case in many institutions. Nevertheless, how close we are to resolving these issues of pace and timing and, for example, encouraging a sense of belonging to the institution, um, these are things that we, we need to consider um, even more so today and how we, we respond to this. At this point, though, in terms of flexibility and the flexibility of provision and delivery and how we respond to students... I'd like to add a caveat that I think too much fluidity and not enough sequential dir uh, direct direction for students can sometimes be problematic as students attempt to navigate this maze of higher education. <clears throat> Way back at the start of uh, many of these projects in about 97, 98 and the Deering Report, um, Edwards, I think his name Richard Edwards, quoted on lifelong learning and suggested we remove these inflexible boundaries in order for the learner to roam at will. And the metaphor uh, he used was open moorland. So we need to break down these barriers and create this open moorland in order for the learner to roam at will and provide flexible opportunities to encourage more people uh, into lifelong learning, for example. Now, I think this is great in principle. However, this may be, I think, an inappropriate metaphor, because moorland suggests to me a place where you become easily lost and disorientated. We are, you know, we're probably just moving from mazes to moorland. I think a compass, a map should be provided and students need to have a clear sense of direction. In other words, you need good guidance, don't you? Uh, you need good counselling, good information. It needs to be the responsibility of the institution and the experienced and committed practitioner to guide students through. Uh, Jenny Worsley's uh, research picks up on the importance of the relationship between students and tutors. And for me, today, Rita would have probably not gone beyond the registration process before she probably gave up um, um, on her studies. Uh, I come back to group identity and peer support as well. This is a clear theme that emerged out of this project. There was definitely a sense of identity as a collective of people. And this allowed the students to develop peer support and encourage each other and to take each other's feelings into account. 
Now, given that my part-time students here studied off-campus and maybe perhaps just met once or twice a, a week, this uh, encouraging a group dynamic was very important. As one person said, supporting each other through hard times from strangers to sisterhood was highlighted as a key theme in the research that I did with this group. And this resonates with other research as well. With local part-time students who have developed a part-time learner identity, if you like. Partly in the sense of otherness as mature students. And in addition, they embodied their own routines and ways of doing things. Worsley concludes that part-time learners, for example, often position themselves very care uh, carefully in terms of their engagement in fields of learning, uh, in working and their personal lives. So it begs the question, can we make more uh, proactive associations with new cohorts that removes feelings of isolation? helps bond and creates a sense of identity for these students. Might this help as well with retention and progression rates? Many uh, observe that uh, engagement and belonging is vital to student retention and success. But this seems particularly challenging with local students who lead very disparate lives. From my own experience, I'm convinced that this is the case. I, I don't know about you, I'm continually racking my brain to think how I as an individual or indeed institutions can do more to increase students' sense of belonging. And I'm not just talking about part-time students here, but full-time commuter students as well. And help them socialise into university life. A culture needs to, to be developed that facilitates a sense of belong, uh, sorry, belonging despite my experience of a number of different institutions and students, I'm actually still struggling to picture what this, here, what this is and how it actually works. So maybe that's something else uh, we can discuss later on. The student experience seems fragmented with very little time for anything outside of lecture slots. Although clearly a strong relationship with the course and with course staff is very important and this has been raised in um, a number of uh, research projects. Just briefly, because this has been covered many times before, I'll mention mentoring. It's not new, but I would argue that maybe relatively little thought has gone into mentoring with mature students, local students or part-time students. And maybe having an experienced student study alongside uh, other students, new students, does have its advantages. It ad addresses lack of awareness, confidence, and hopefully builds aspirations. And finally, from my project, I just want to highlight confidence. For me, this was a significant outcome of my research. And not just in this project looking at Muslim women in Birmingham, but actually my work at Aston University looking at postcode analysis. On the Muslim Women Project, for example, it was noted that uh, confidence levels increased as the course progressed, which is what you'd hope, of course. And there's a perceptible difference in students' confidence that was best exemplified 
by questions around career development. Furthermore, students on the, on, within the Muslim Women Project felt that as their course progressed, they became better equipped to quote one student to deal with the outside world. Similarly, at Aston, students from high participation postcodes registered a much more confident outlook as opposed to their low participation neighbourhood counterparts. The former, uh, former comments reflected a much more can-do approach. Oh, well, well, once I've got my degree, I can do anything and go anywhere sort of philosophy. Whereas the low participation neighbourhood students were characterised by a much more hesitant, a much more cautious approach about what they hoped they may do if they were lucky enough and if they get through their degree. Now this is very subjective, I admit, um, but there was definitely a difference in confidence levels between these two groups that needed further investigation, I think. The thing is, you wouldn't, walking down the corridor, pick out the less confident students from the more confident students. They will all look the same in many respects. In any more, and, uh, and also, uh, any more than you'd pick out the local student from the not-so-local student. But in some respect, this is representative of the challenges we face. Who are the local students? Who are the community students? What don't we know? And can be can we be certain of what we do know? Do we make too many assumptions? Earlier on I talked about making connections with a range of projects uh, up and down um, the, the country that I looked at. And certainly these came, th these came um, out of that comparative exercise. I'll just bring these up quickly and then talk about them if that's okay. So what were these common, uh, commonalities? The variations of conclusions, well, they, they reflect the different sorts of projects, whether they looked at younger students or mature students, to be honest. But there were generic issues from a number of diverse projects. Um, and we can talk about any of these, but certainly coming back to the idea of uh, good information, advice and guidance, flexibility of provision, help with study support, a real sense of community to practice as well. I don't mean for practitioners, but I mean actually for peer groups of students developing a community of practice and peer support or collectivity, I think, was important. Issues around dedicated teams and the amount of support required and making sure it wasn't all plonked on one department or one group of people that it is embedded throughout the institution. I don't know whether this still happens for many people, but the nature of this type of provision, that it's peripheral to the institution more often than not, rather than central to the institution. And again, I, I still think more could be done on this, but one of the uh, commonalities I found running through these reports uh, was confidence and how we support students and develop their confidence. Confidence is rarely highlighted in policy and strategy and sometimes in the past it's been at the expense of this sort of deficit model. 
whereas where in the past there was a discourse based on the learner's shortcomings rather than building up their experience and their expertise and their confidence. I think this is policy making based on assumptions and generalisations rather than grounded evidence, uh, which we need more of. Uh, given our relatively little knowledge of the needs of local students, these assumptions, I think, are at best a sort of scattergun approach, where much of what we deliver uh, might not land on target, or at worst may be counterproductive or a waste of resources. Another thing that comes to my mind is a sense of the rapidly changing discourses um, discourses today compared with say 20 years ago or post Deering and the discourse today is about the changing landscape of higher education it's about student choice that's what's coming out of Westminster it's about for example the forthcoming teaching excellence framework it's about market competition isn't it it's about employability I'm okay with competition, but in a competition I feel there's always winners and losers. We seem to have had a school system this way for some time. So in schools, the only people it's been argued with real choice are the affluent, the confident chooser, the knowledgeable. So, for example, um, um, Givertz talks about the privileged and the skilled chooser when parents choose schools for their children or the semi-skilled or the disconnected chooser. I think you can probably talk about this within higher education because I think maybe the privileged and the skilled choosers are within that sort of macro um, concept if you like and there are many more disconnected choosers within this sort of sort of micro uh, climate of the local and the local widening participation student. Stephen Ball also talks about choosers and he's in, um, in one of his papers actually has a whole list of different types of uh, choosers but in a nutshell he talks about the contingent chooser and the embedded chooser. So he talks about the contingent chooser who knows little about higher education and the embedded chooser who makes a choice with um, a certain amount of benefit from the cultural capital or, and their habitus, for example. Now, I have to say, in my teaching now and um, as a practitioner, I do meet far more contingent choosers, far more disconnected choosers. So I think we have to think about widening participation now within the context of this new um, climate, if you like, of choice uh, that is coming out of Westminster. Within this new market economy for higher education, there's still space for the local, I think, the social, and maybe civic dimensions for the university. But where does it leave universities in terms of their responsibilities to the local and to their local communities? In a new landscape of more choice, 
Um, do we have to consider the power or the lack of certain students to, or prospective students to exercise choice and knowledge and how it relates? We may need to think about how this relates to social justice as well. In terms of uh, the needs of local students and part-time students and identity as well, Worsley discusses unity and difference, for example. And um, <clears throat> that her part-time students were unified by difference and a separation to the mainstream. Uh, this is slightly at variance with some of the students' comments in other reports that allude to the need to be treated equally rather than different um, than the rest of the student body. The part-time local learner identity included meeting academic expectations, uh, as Worsley says, whilst at the same time facing their perceived otherness as a mature student. Now, actually, this idea of uh, unity or difference uh, in many re respects sounds slightly contradictory. But actually, both approaches are equally valid. What I'm saying is uh, it does add to the complexity of the issues and the challenges that we face as teachers, researchers and practitioners. And do institutions, a further question, do institutions really consider or respond to these intersectionalities and complexities? Okay, just to conclude then, I appreciate that the central theme of today is getting back to the micro, micro and considering the more pragmatic as opposed to the abstract. But in some ways it actually feels heartening that today there is a proliferation of research and papers published with respect to widening participation. Whilst a significant amount might relate to the abstract concepts, we do still need to ground that and apply our knowledge. It's funny actually how today we uh, talk about widening participation in mostly abstract terms. In some ways it's a measure of the distance we've travelled in this field and the ideas that we've generated. And what I mean by this is, go back to post-1997, the focus was almost entirely practical with practitioners uh, mediating or negotiating between academia and between access. Today, however, we have a much greater evidence based around recruitment, pedagogy, retention and so on although I really do think we can do more around locality, around the micro and the complex needs of students. <clears throat> but more than ever, we are considering actually the abstract and theory with respect to our own practice. Actually, I don't think this is a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I think it raises the status of what we do. But by considering the abstract, we are simply trying to make sense of what we do in the context that we work within. Whilst our shared data and experiences at practitioner level, um, it rarely sort of elevates itself off report pages and into journals. I think what we need to do is complete the cycle, if you like, and ensuring that our understanding uh, and our research goes on 
and informs policy making at higher levels above our heads. But that was ever it thus, I think. What's the French phrase? Pousse la chance or something like that? Anyway, to return to uh, Rita, it is, of course, the case that there probably never was such an archetypal student represented by the character of Rita and her experiences. Maybe it does only inform us in limited ways about the educational journey through higher education that some students take. But it might have something to say about the issues that many and a diverse range of students face, such as how the student experience is mediated, mediated in terms of the social, the cultural, the economic, family and employment responsibilities. Arguably it might shed more light on our practice if we not only consider the higher education landscape as we like to call it, uh, not in, just in terms of the micro, but maybe we need to consider the student. So if you like these metaphors, which I like, maybe it's, not, it's about the landscape of the higher education institution, but it's sort of the microclimate of the student. Stay with me. Uh, I've nearly finished. If you like this metaphor, I think it's about responding to climate change in sustainable ways. In many respects, each microclimate of the student is unique and ambiguous. We should still apply the advice given to me some time ago not to assume anything at all, perhaps even more so these days in complex cities and regions. With respect to these me metaphors, perhaps it is not only about the student negotiating the landscape, the landscape that institutions have shaped and formed over the last hundred years or so, but actually it's about institutions responding to climate change in terms of the needs of our students. In my experience, students align themselves with their course more than any other aspect of their institution. And perhaps this will enable us to combine this affinity with developing and sustaining peer groups to enable support and, and encouragement. This might provide a mechanism that helps recruit, nurture and sustain widening participation activities and commitments. At that note, I've gone quite a bit over than I thought I would, but we've still got hopefully plenty of time for uh, discussion. So thanks very much for listening for so long. Thank you.